But I think it's about trust. It's about intimacy. And it's about a truth that I believe in, that there's no transformation unless you're willing to face your demons. And I think it's someone else that can be with you in that. You know, keep going, keep going. And it's I've just seen how it happens. And I read poets that are, are willing to go to those spaces. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And I'm Andrew Heller, filling in for Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have author and award-winning poet Nancy Mitchell. Her new book of poetry, titled The Out of Body Shop, has just been published by Plume Editions. Nancy, a Pushcart Prize winner, has put together a collection of work in this book, which has been described as a tour de force and as leaving no shade of grief or beauty unexamined. She is here today to chat with us about her new book and her poetry. So welcome to the podcast, Nancy. Thanks. It's really wonderful to be here with you, too. Well, I am delighted to have you here. I think I've wanted you here since uh, for, since two years since oh, we met. Oh, gosh, it's so <laughs> awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we. Uh, uh, you and I first met, and I think a uh, little inside baseball, you and Andrew already know each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I've known Nancy for a few years, so when you asked me to fill in today, I was very excited to, to hang out and talk with Nancy today. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, because yeah. um, you both worked at the Maryland Summer Center for the Arts, and I know you both worked with, with young folks, and so I thought this would make a, I thought this yeah. would make a really great, great conversation. Yeah, great, yeah. yeah, so I understand uh, you've got this new collection of poetry that you've put together called The Out of Body Shop, and uh, Andrew and I were fortunate enough to kind of get a sneak peek. I was really touched that you said we were we were some of the first to read yeah, it. Yeah, you are my I first readers really outside of the publisher. The, the title really grabs me. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about that. Well, you know, I thought of... Uh, the out-of-body shop, it's kind of, you think of the out-of-body shop, but then the out-of-body shop is about uh, experiences that people have had that they've had a split. Do you know what I mean? They've split from, their body is literally split from their psyche. And the metaphor is that they go into this out-of-body shop to be retrofitted, <laughs> you know, but the trick about retrofitting is that you have to go back and recover the parts of yourself that were damaged in trauma. So yeah. you have to be willing to go back and investigate the past. So these poems actually go back and look at the past and sort of stalk ghosts and demand that those ghosts give up those parts they're holding hostage. So, um, you know, I thought, well, that's really interesting. And I, I subscribe to Jung's theory that of transformation, that if we have traumatic events or something that has, you know, he was a, a big fan of the integrated self right. and trauma makes us disintegrate. So he, you know, he said, if you can make something a work of art, anything that can articulate that experience, you actually transform it into something outside of your own body. Right. Transforming that, that grief that you that were talking grief into about something into something else. beautiful. Right. So what has happened to this is that each of these things explores those experiences and I'm not the speaker in everyone but I've heard these experiences and and felt an empathetic connection and wrote in the voice of the person who's experienced and sometimes they're uh, they're con you know conglomerates of different speakers like the the poem Black Bittern right. is one that it wasn't one person but I'd heard so many stories and you know it's almost like 
like I worked in the uh, work for uh, the state actually to do grief counseling in the sense of writing for wellness. I'm not qualified sure. to be your grief counselor, <laughs> but I was in these workshops and helping people deal with their grief, you know, and writing for healing. And I kept hearing these stories. I mean, the opioid epidemic has really been oh, very, very serious. Yeah. And I'd say the majority of the people that were there to process this, but in their processing, I was taking this in and I really had to offload, download, or do something with this material. And as you know, you're both artists, you're both writers. So in a sense, you transform that by writing about it. And I think it, and you all have read the poem and, and I have to tell you that my, one of my brothers, I showed it to him and it was like, oh my God, what is wrong with you? It's like why we can't have nice (laughs) things because of you (laughs) in the family. You know, but it was like, even though it ends the way it does, there is something beautiful in the fact that this, this young man is able to make a promise, you know, and keep it. And so it's, it's, it's interesting how you say that, that it comes from so many different voices, which, Mm -hmm. which I love because when I read it, it, it struck me as autobiographical in the sense that, I mean, you're, you're, you're so truthfully dealing with the grief and you're so Mm -hmm. truthfully, um, I, I, I discussed it with Stephanie. I I was talking about how, how raw many, many of the emotions Mm -hmm. felt, which I think helped me identify with it because I know you and I like you and I want to identify with you even more as Mm -hmm. a person. Mm -hmm. But I I think that speaks to how just beautiful it is that it's, it's so many different voices and it's, it's, you know, that we can all connect on different levels. I think so. And, you know, even though, you know, probably a lot of people have had fabulous childhoods and they don't have any, you know, memories that are, are their fault lines, you know, but they're fault lines that we have. And I think when people are the most vulnerable is when they're actually the most beautiful. Right. Yeah. And I think I, I definitely saw that in the poem, um, the intake invoice, because mm-hmm. here you have a young girl and there's this really not wonderful moment that she has with the bus driver. And when you were talking about this out of body experience, like this awful thing is happening to this young girl by her bus driver and all that. And it's almost like you can sense that, that breaking of her in the poem, that disassociation where she just literally stares at his pupil and it sort she sort of vanishes into a nothingness in that, in that moment. And I remember thinking that, you know, that is something that happens to young women. You know, young women have these, experiences and there is that sort of leaving of the body you know when when people have a a traumatic experience Mm -hmm. and I think when you're talking about young people I think that that sort of encapsulated when you were talking about that just now that was the one that kind of came to mind that sort of encapsulated what you were just saying Mm -hmm. and then you know I think but I think also to say trauma is trauma is is sort of cuts it short because there are things we can learn from it there is things that we can we can grow from it and we can create beautiful things from trauma you know and i and i think this collection sort of highlights that quite quite well well thank you and i also uh, what i'm always amazed when i read these poems publicly i've read some of them how many people will come up to me afterwards and say thank you for reading that. Thank you for witnessing that. Now you're giving me the courage to be honest about it. Sure. And I feel like if I'm standing up there and I look like I'm okay and I'm able to witness these things, then I can say there is another side to this. And those people, especially that, the, uh, the speaker in Black Bitter, and 
didn't die in vain. I mean, if right. you remember the poem, this kid didn't start out, yeah, I'm just going to be getting high. He had that disorder where he just couldn't assimilate too much emotion or too much beauty. And then when he took a, you know, an opioid for an abscessed tooth, they stopped. Yeah. And he thought, my life can begin, but I can, of course I can it do didn't. Something now. Yeah, yeah, because it be, you know became an addiction, et cetera, et cetera. So, but I don't know why these things happen. You know, I'm thinking, was I thrilled that I was writing this? Po- you know, would mm-hmm. I like to be like you know my friend Joe Maloof who saves old growth forest? Yeah. Why am I suddenly the <laughs> spokesperson for people that are broken? But I think that's what I am. You know, and I accept it. And I. As I was, we were talking about, I was the champion of the underdog. I loved right. Ringo because no one loved Ringo, you <laughs> right, know? Right. And I, when p- kids were bullied, I was like, not going to let that happen. I don't know what it was about my own life, but well, there's I a, identified There's it, yes. a strong gentleness about you. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I see that in, in your teaching. I mean, working working at the Maryland Summer Center with you and, and, and how you work with, with the young people and, and getting them to express sometimes... That teenage angst turns turns dark, but but that but, like I said, that 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 strong gentleness that you that you have to, oh, to guide people you. through their their emotions and their feelings, even when they're dark, and to turn them into something something more, you know. Well, Frost said the only way to get over something is to go through it, yeah. and I always feel that with the students, I really really want them to be as real as they can. And be as real as they are to their own experience. A case in point is I had a student that had written this poem. I let everyone down. I'm going to get out of town. My life is a mess. I'm not a success. And everyone was like, whoa, that's a poem in the workshop. And I said, it's not. It's not. I can't see anything. I don't know anything. So I kept pushing her. I said, what does that mean to you to fail? And then she got really frustrated and just threw her pen down. And she said, okay, dropping out of college and ending up a 45-year-old bleach blonde waitress working at Long Neck Grotto's Pizza. I said, that's so beautiful. There it is. (laughs) You have a poem. And it's yours. No one, everybody, that's an abstraction failure. But when you make it yours, no one in the world is ever going to say that. And they were, you know, she was thrilled. And some of the guys were like, I, one guy said, I've got one. Okay, it's flunking out and moving back home and living in your mother's basement and sleeping on an air mattress. And all the other guys in the class were like, dude, that is so true. But, you know, subterranean mother, you know, not parents, but mother going back to the womb. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, you're not even fit to be walking on the streets. That's how <laughs> low you can go. But just to to take that abstraction and tether it to what's real requires you to push on your own personal life and your own personal fault lines. Because this girl was saying, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to grow up and be that woman, you know, and that might've been not PC, but she was like, that is not what I want. She may be the nicest woman in the world, but no, you know? Yeah. And so that's where I'm, you know, that's what I, I, in teaching, that's what I ask for from my students. That's what I won't, I won't give that up. I won't stop pushing until they can go dive a little deeper. Dive a little deeper, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think one of the things that I liked most about this collection, The Out of Body Shop, and Andrew and I talked about this as after we we both read it and then we came together and I was like, what'd you think? He's like, no, what'd you think? And I was like, well, I loved it. What about you? And he's like, he's like, I really liked it. And then we started chattering about what we liked. And I thought, mm-hmm. 
you know, I'm a nonfiction person. I, I used to write poetry when I was in high school and I was terrible at it. I wrote this very angsty, emotional, you know, hippie drippy sort of poetry and it, and it was terrible. And I, it wasn't until I got to college that I switched gears and I began writing nonfiction and short stories and essays and really found, that's where I found my voice. Um, so I've walked away from poetry a long time ago and sometimes I find poetry is really dense or it's really inaccessible. But what I liked about your collection, and in fact, what I loved about it, was I felt that you don't set any distance between you and your reader. There is an, mm-hmm. an immediate intimacy for going into your poem, and there are, I, I just feel like you've kind of taken me by the hand, and you've kind of led me in, and you're like, mm-hmm. I need to tell you these stories I need you to kind of sit with me for a second. I'm going to paint these pictures. I'm going to put these photographs in front of you. And I want you to see the things I've seen. And I just felt like you you made these very powerful themes. You made these very intense emotions of, you know, grief and beauty, you know, like I said in the intro. You, you made them very accessible and, and immediately accessible, but not in a dumbed down way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I just thought that that was, I just thought that just showed the brilliance of what you were able to do here. Well, gosh, thanks. I'm really happy that you had that experience. And that's, I want that intimacy. That's what I'm writing is to you and to you, I'm writing to you, you know, and to I write about trauma, you know, is very intimate. It is. And you know, I'm, I'm thinking of when you said you when you first started writing poetry with the only reason you felt it was hippie and drippy and that <laughs> is that you were probably writing about abstractions and you weren't nailing them to mm. the tangible. Mm. And I bet if you came to one of my creative writing workshops, you'd be writing poetry because I can show you how to just do that. You know, it's like it's here, but it only works when it's here. Okay. You know? Yeah. Challenge accepted, Nancy. All right. <laughs> I would love it. I would I'm love it. Yeah. We'll do it, we'll do it together. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. together. Yeah. I would love it. And, you know, I just, I don't think, I just think that we've, you know, look at the poetry that most people grew up reading. It was inaccessible. It was by, you know, you know, John dead Dunn. white guys yeah. that are, you know, that, <laughs> you know, guys. we couldn't, had to look up every other word. But you look at something like Patricia Smith's Skinhead, it's on, you know, YouTube. It will strip you away. You know, she starts out, they call me skinhead, and she's an African-American woman Mm -hmm. writing in the voice of a white supremacist. Wow. And at the end of the poem, she performs the miracle of we have sympathy for him, for this person who would annihilate her. You know, it's a miracle of what she does. But I, I showed that to my students at Salisbury when they're like, I'm like, so why are you taking poetry in there? Well, it's Laying short. Out yeah. That much vulnerability <clears throat> is is something I, and, and and as teacher, I mean I my, my teaching comes more in, in theater and, and that mm-hmm. aspect. I'm sometimes playwriting, um, and certainly mm-hmm. getting getting people to get up there mm-hmm. with a monologue or or what have you, but to get people to expose so much vulnerability and so much truth on on paper. I mean, how 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 do you go about that? I mean, that's 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 a tough one. Well, I, I show them my vulnerabilities first Mm -hmm. and then they trust me. And when they, and they know that they can't get anywhere unless they dive deeper, unless they go deeper or they can write. I mean, I've had 
people say to me that <laughs> direct programs where I'll teach, can't you just have a class in fun poetry like limericks or something? Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm like, yeah, you could try, but can't I think they take a nasty turn. <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's about trust. It's about intimacy. And, and it's about a truth that I believe in, that there's no transformation unless you're willing to face your demons. And I think it's someone else that can be with you in that. You know, keep going, keep going. And it's I've just seen how it happens. And I read poets that are are willing to go to those spaces, you know, and there's sort of a turn from that. And I don't know exactly why, but things are a little more coy lately and sort of word games and things like that. But, you know, I'm not really interested in that kind of poetry. I'm right. just not. No, um, there's, there's no word games. In, yeah, in, I'm not playing. What we're reading. Yeah. Here. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I mean, certainly yeah. there's form and there's flow and there's beauty and there's different style that comes into it and you play with the words in some in some cases but not word games yeah Yeah, i'm not playing games right with the reader at all you know and it's it's like if if you you know want to be a part of this world then you know it's kind of like you have to you have to deep dive with me when we keep pushing on it it's like haven't you ever kept your lover's an article of clothing and put your face in it and it is nothing but an elixir and they all sheepishly say they have but it's like that's a transformation of love and that's all he has is the free holding on to things or the parents do that it doesn't have to just be that i mean my mother has my teeth somewhere you know from when i was a kid my sister always found gross why do you have teeth in your jewelry box it's so voodoo but it's so beautiful because it is a remnant and there's not i mean that's tooth has got a lot of dna information in it you know and you know we've like the poem you said you like prudence which is sort of these um uh, cautionary tales they're they're things you know that we Poetry was always a teaching tool for a long time because it was an oral tradition. And I like to think it is the same way, too. It's sure. like I've, I'm feeling you, feeling me, feeling you. You know, I saw that one as a stream know, of conscious of like old wives tales. It was. But I, I, I loved it. And we were talking earlier yeah. how you don't even know if you made some of them up. I, I said, don't no, know. Because I feel like I think all of them are familiar to me, maybe worded differently, yeah. but they're still they're, they're familiar. Yeah, they're resonating in some way that which makes me so thrilled and happy because that's, I think, you know, this is something kind of interesting. Like uh, I interviewed uh, Norman Duby. I don't know if you know him, but he's a poet way back. You know, he went way back. He was kind of a cult hero at one time. Now he's old, you know, and but he dropped out of writing for about 10 years and then became a Buddhist and um, really kind of entered into this interesting zone. And he, uh, like a lot of poets, very interested in quantum physics and, you know, the different roads that the possibilities, the sister lives that run parallel to ours, and that when we have a coincidence, sometimes it's when those lives intersect, just huh. like this. So, uh, you know, and I, I thought about it, but he said that he actually, when he starts to write poems, he will audition the speakers that present themselves to him and then choose one that is the most compelling and he said it comes from a particular uh, tradition of, of Buddhism that's that's f- 
feminine based. So I thought, wow, you know, that's kind of interesting. You know, I hadn't really thought about that. But, you know, Norman Doobie can say it because he's so out there. <laughs> right, you know? right. And it's like, go ahead, Norman Doobie. Good for you, good you for know. You. Well, that was one of the things I was, that was one of the questions that I had is, um, you know, as I was reading this and, and having, you know, known you, you know, wondering how much is autobiographical, how much is maybe something that came to you, how much is inspired. So I don't know if you could tell us a little bit about how these speakers, whether they're you or whether they're people, you know, how did, how did they come to you and how did you kind of choose who made the cut for this collection? Yeah, I didn't quite, you know, I wasn't like Norman auditioning. I probably don't have that sort of swaggering confidence that he has like let's see what you can read me here but I I think the speakers are a combination of people like the the one um Bellhaven Farewell there are two names in there that are from my family just because I thought they were interesting Norfleet and Irving Mm -hmm. but a lot of it is kind of uh you know you know there's the truth of the story you know, the emotional truth. And sometimes I think that what I'm writing is the emotional truth, maybe not the factual truth. Right, and sometimes those are different. Yeah. So I think that that's what you're connecting with, is this is an emotional truth. Maybe it's not a fact. I know Nancy Mitchell isn't a man. She's writing this in the voice (laughs) of a man. But why? You know, who is this speaker? But I think I must have connected in some way to what these speakers were going through. You know, there's one about the erstwhile brood uh, and farmer laments, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was just like, you know, when you're young and you have these great ideas and you screw up and you look back and and go, God, I was such an idiot. You know, what did I do, you know? But there's kind of a longing and a lament, I think, in each of these speakers that if they had had more, I don't know, if they'd made different choices and thinking of quantum physics again, is that you've seen that cult movie, probably what the bleep do we know, which I think is really wonderful. (laughs) And it's like a fan. We have all these possibilities in our life and the one we choose uh, sets the trajectory of our lives. But at the same time, a lot of quantum physicists would posit that we actually, those lives are continuing along with the life that we are living, which is very interesting. And, you know, the idea that if you split a molecule, move it all the way, you know, to the other sides of the world, they, when something happens to this one, this one vibrates. And I, I hope I've got that right. If not, look up that interview yeah. I did with Jeff, <laughs> Jeff Skinner. But Sounds good on the radio, I'm going to say But you know how that. you have yeah. these, lo- like, it's like, why, you know, like 25 years later, why does that make me think of that memory that is as vivid as it, is if it happened yesterday. Right. What is that? You know, so I'm real curious about physics. I think it, it could answer a lot of questions for us. And we're not, you know, when you think of poets and they always sort of knew ahead of anybody else, you know, that um, Walt Whitman, what did he say? I'm going to misquote it, but every, every atom belonging to me as well belongs to you. Right. You know, right, right. paraphrasing it here. And then, um, you know, the guy on Cosmos, uh, what was it? you know, Cosmos. Oh, Sagan. Carl Sagan? Yeah, Carl yes, Sagan. Yeah. Carl Sagan yeah. I was you thinking know. Neil deGrasse Tyson, but yeah, I knew yeah. that was the new <laughs> one. Was the one. <laughs> it was so long ago. But, uh, you know, we're made of everything. You know, we're yeah. made of the same material. We just manifest in different ways. Mm-hmm. So there's some connection, 
that we can't quite articulate, but we feel it. Sure. Yeah. We feel it. Sure. And where and this may not be my story, it still is. It because is your I can story still because connect. It's I can still yeah. feel. Yeah. You still have oh you still have the ability to you still connect because we are connected. And yeah. my first book, The Near Surround, is a physics term for everything that we feel but can't perceive with these senses, but we feel it nonetheless. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I feel this, I'm going to bet on this because I feel it. And I think when we go with those gut instincts, things kind of turn out, but so many times we second guess ourselves Yeah, and and we listen to other voices. And when you're talking about feeling and connection, there was a poem about the family photograph of the four Mm -hmm. sisters. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think the one that Andrew and I, it was my favorite. It was both of our favorites. And you know, after we had read them and we came together, Andrew goes before anything, I want you, I want you to read this one. And as soon as I got there, it was that, that last line of, you know, I loved her most, because she was loved the least. And, you know, and Andrew and I talked about that, and I said, I think what I love about that line is that it reveals as much about the speaker as it does about Helen, the subject. You know, Helen, who was the least loved sister, but the speaker is saying, I loved her the most because she was loved the least. And there's kind of this duality between the two where it's kind of, it's this information passing into you in sort of a subconscious way and sort of, you know, because it didn't, that wasn't the first thing. When I first read that line, I was like, oh, that's such a sweet line. It just, and I remember when I, when you I, you grabbed your, I actually, yeah, you, you, you know, touched kinda, your chest. I yeah. kind of touched my chest and I was like, man, that just gets you right there. And then as I thought about that line, you know, the more I was like, there, there's so much packed into that. And I thought that really is the beauty of poetry is packing so much into the brief time that you have. Sure, sure. I think that, and I saw, as you were talking about, what is that last line? What is that last nine? And what does it mean? And seeing seeing what it meant for the, for the author, seeing what it maybe meant for Helen. And I sit there and I think of my own Aunt Helen, because that's where I went to. And I actually had a conversation with her about, my, with, about her with my cousin this morning. So it kind of was a, a weird connection mm-hmm. as I read that. But... It makes me think of all the possibilities, and I think of my possibility, because that was one possibility with a Helen, who I also, of my Nana's sisters, she's the one I love the most, so I mm-hmm. had that connection, which was neat. But, I mean, then I got to see your possibility, and there are so many oh. other possibilities that others will connect with. You oh, know? that's wonderful to hear. And I, I think that, you know, what you're saying, that learning, not only did you learn about the speaker, the writer, the subject, but you learned something about yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, and I did feel, you know, there was a photograph that is autobiographical and we lived in Texas away from our relatives in North Carolina. And, you know, it reminds me that we think maybe our kids don't really care about the old photographs. But but I was so, we didn't have family around and I would just, I was intrigued. Now, my brothers and sisters weren't equally intrigued, but, you know, I was (laughs) the kind of kid (laughs) that would be intrigued, you know, and my mother would be can you go outside and play? Why are you staring at that photograph? Right, right. But I would think, you know, this sister's pretty. This sister's pretty. This person, this sister's smart. But Helen, you could just tell, you know, that she was just not planned by those rules. She wasn't going to get gussied up, you know, and maybe nobody tried to gussy. And I just thought, Helen, I'm going <laughs> to love her best. And maybe she'll feel this. I mean, who? Right. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe she does. Yeah. She was spectacular. You know, yeah. she was wonderful. She ended up being, you know, she was not a tremendously attractive woman, but um, she had three husbands. They, 
you know, they die, so she didn't, it wasn't nefarious. <laughs> Not at the same time. <laughs> she used to have a whole armful of bangles, and when we'd be driving with her, it didn't matter what who the man was on the street, but just to tickle us, she would point that arm out the window, and all those bracelets would go all the way to her wrist. She'd say, you, you want to marry me? And we would just howl, you know, and she would just be like <laughs> such a, you know, she wasn't, she just let it rip, you know, and... Oh, I love Helen even more yeah, now. She kind of <laughs> reminded me of, you know how Margaret Mead was not a really an attractive woman, but her parents, she said, my parents loved me so much, I never had any idea that I wasn't beautiful. You know, uh, I mean, she'd see herself in photos next to other women and be, gosh, I guess I'm really not that beautiful, you know, but she said, I never knew. And it didn't <laughs> matter because she didn't experience that growing up, but yeah, there was always that connection to, um, as I said, to the underdog, yeah. you know, and um, I still can, you know, find myself boiling inside when I see people mistreated for who they are, you know, I mean, for who they are, that's a beautiful thing that they're not like, like everyone else. And, you know, the torment, I wasn't tormented in, in uh, you know, I was, I, I passed, <laughs> for a normal kid, you know, in every yeah. sense of the word. But I would have these experiences where they were out of body in the sense that one time I, my parents, they were kind of like Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. They were very beautiful, glamorous, and we were satellites. It was their central drama, and we were just kind of... And I remember, you know, I was in, I went to school in a coat, and I'm sure it was a Chanel, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it was a spring coat, and it was winter, and I overheard the teacher say, it's such a shame she doesn't have a warm coat. And I actually looked around to see who it might be, you know, because right. it couldn't be me. I was in Chanel, was you know, in but, Chanel. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. It's just always that sense of like, there's this other world with these other rules and these, and I just, I'm out, I'm on the periphery. You, did you ever feel that way as artists and writers? Didn't you ever feel like you're a man? Our, yeah. yeah, I think that's kind yeah. of goes with the territory. Yeah. You know, Andrew and I were actually talking about that. We, we were making jokes about the, the writer starter kit. And I was like, you, you know, you get a weirdo, you get to be weird. And it's a bottle of whiskey and a dictionary and an old typewriter and like a broken spirit, you know, like the writer's starter kit. Yep. You know yeah. what I mean? Did you all, is, did, are you thinking of making one? <laughs> Maybe yeah. we should. <laughs> Maybe, Maybe we, we should. should. It's fantastic. If it's a poet, you have to throw in the beret. That's yeah, what beret. my students yeah. always say. And like know. somebody snapping. An yeah. burner, you know, yeah. something yeah. like that. Yeah. But I think yeah. there's something to that, you know, about being a, a writer, being a creative type, I think is you have to have one foot in both worlds. You have to be in a place enough to be part of what is happening, but you also kind of have to have one foot on the outside to be able to observe and say, what is this reality? What is this situation? What is making it work? What What are my perceptions of it? What makes it tick? And, and then to be able to write because you can't be in the middle of the party to right. write. You kind of have to right. step aside away from the party to actually write. So I think there's, I think we're sort of born outsiders in, in, in to some degree. And I, I think. think we have deep privacies, Yeah, you know, and you know, it's that sense of when I was a kid, um, I, I don't know if you all did this or not, but I was really, I was just had a deep curiosity about everything. But one thing that made me really interested was 
who am I, you know, and how did I get here? And my mother had a, you know, those vanity mirrors that I could actually turn it and make a tunnel. And I was like, I thought if I kept questioning my reflection, my reflection would give it up. Like, who are you? And it's like, I know you're a person. Elizabeth Bishop writes about that in, in the waiting room in, in her, I think it's in the waiting room. But, um, so there's that sense of, I know I'm in this world, but then another equally real sense that I'm not really of this world. I'm not really buying into that football game and homecoming queen thing. It's kind of okay, but it's not really, it's not real. There's more more facets. There's more places than that. I think. Yeah. Because I think there are people who are fine with homecoming queen. Oh, sure. And and not the football, you know, the football quarterback. But I think there are people that are just like, but what else is there? You know, I think that's, That's the journey. Right. And, and I think some people, I mean, in, in growing up in, in really small southern Florida um, or southern town in, in, in Florida, really north Florida is southern mm-hmm. Florida. That doesn't make sense. But it was big football. You know, it was, it was big homecoming queen. It was big, those mm-hmm. kinds of kinds of things. And I always, I wasn't the football player. I wasn't going to go out with the homecoming queen. You know, I wasn't going <laughs> to do those things. It wasn't my reality. <laughs> and yet it was the reality I was living in. So yeah. I mean, you could be very observant of and you don't have a tribe so much, you know, but, yeah. you know, I dated the homecoming king and the, <laughs> Look at you. And the <laughs> captain of the football. But I was like, yeah, really? I mean, you know, I was like, I wasn't terribly sympathetic when, pe- you know, I wasn't a great girlfriend because, you know, when they would lose a game, he would be in a terrible funk and boohoo. And I'd be like, <laughs> like come on, the war in Vietnam's going on, you <laughs> right. know. So, you know, it's like, what's wrong with you? You know, how can this be? that important but it was you know so I don't know it wasn't you know it was always a sense of something more curious was resonating out there that got Mm -hmm. my attention and that's what I was always after it was mystery right I mean what's mysterious about the way it's set up it's not that mysterious right to us the status quo in a sense so it was always more it always just felt that I was drawn to mystery yeah of how people interacted why people were the way they were why why did they work so hard at hiding who they were right you know right um, right, right. That, it was very curious about that why, and, why do they respond in the way they respond i'm not going to be hang up on the negativity that maybe someone said but let me go further deeper yeah. and find out where is where is that coming from that maybe i can identify with And not to disparage any of that, because I think, you know, after the quote-unquote hippie movement, because, you know, I went to Kent State, I was a hippie, et cetera, but I ran into that that football player, et cetera, and, you know, he was just as, you know, he had broken on through to the other side like everybody else had, you know, in a sense. But, you know, he looked back, he said, wow, you know, I look back, it was like, it's like being woke in a sense, Mm -hmm. you know, coming out of something. But boy, I wanted to be that. I, you know, so much would actually have fantasies of just not being, you know, to, to just be able to be concerned about who won. I thought, what a luxury to not be sort of plagued by more existential questions, mm-hmm. you know? Well, Andrew, I think, well, to end on an existential existential note, it has been delightful (laughs) having you here. It's always fun talking to you outside of here, but... 
This was a lot of fun sharing you with it everyone. It was. This is the kind of thing, like a dinner with Andre, I think we could turn this off and probably talk all night. I you think know? we probably and might. And maybe we'll do just <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Nancy. Thank it was, you it was for a having pleasure. me. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. On iTunes, Radio Public, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, take a second and give us a great review. Tell your story.